Okay, Psalm 33. Rejoice in the Lord, O you righteous, for praise from the upright is beautiful. Praise the Lord with the harp, make melody to Him with an instrument of ten strings. Sing to Him a new song, play skillfully with a shout of joy. For the word of the Lord is right, and all His work is done in truth. He loves righteousness and justice. The earth is full of the goodness of the Lord. By the word of the Lord, the heavens were made, and all the host of them by the breath of his mouth. He gathers the waters of the sea together as a heap. He lays up the deep in storehouses. Let all the earth fear the Lord. Let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of him. For he spoke, and it was done. He commanded, and it stood fast. The Lord brings the counsel of the nations to nothing. He makes the plans of the peoples of no effect. The counsel of the Lord stands forever. The plans of his heart to all generations. Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord, the people he has chosen as his own inheritance. The Lord looks from heaven. He sees all the sons of men. From the place of his dwelling, he looks on all the inhabitants of the earth. He fashions their hearts individually. He considers all their works. No king is saved by the multitude of an army. A mighty man is not delivered by great strength. A horse is a vain hope for safety. Neither shall it deliver any by its great strength. Behold, the eye of the Lord is on those who fear him, on those who hope in his mercy, to deliver their soul from death and to keep them alive in famine. Our soul waits for the Lord. He is our help and our shield. For our heart shall rejoice in him, because we have trusted in his holy name. Let your mercy, O Lord, be upon us, just as we hope in you. Let's pray together. Lord God in heaven, you are high above us. You are incomprehensible to our minds, for you are our creator. And what can creatures do uh, to understand uh, things that, are, uh, that existed before us, uh, that are outside of us, uh, that are beyond our perceptions? Uh, Father, we uh, humbly approach you as you reveal yourself, not only in creation all around us each and every day, uh, not only in our conscience, for we are made in your image, But Lord, explicitly, you make yourself known in your word. And it is to your word that we come uh, together, Lord. And we, as we open the words uh, of scripture and also the words of of men who have uh, written and considered your word, uh, help us to seek after you uh, with humility and with faith. For it is only with the eyes of faith that we can behold you. And that is a gift of your grace. Uh, Lord, guide our conversation. I help it to be honoring and glorifying to you. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Okay, this morning we are going to, uh, again, we are in Arthur W. Pink's book, The Attributes of God. Um, We're looking at chapters 2 and 3. Chapter 2 being on the decrees of God. Chapter 3 being on the knowledge of God. Um, So we'll begin uh, with chapter 2. Arthur Pink uh, defines or describes the decree of God uh, as his purpose or determination with respect to future things. His purpose or determination with respect to future things. And I do want to draw our attention as well to the Westminster Confession of Faith, uh, which has a chapter on uh, the eternal decree. And that's chapter 3. And in uh, section 1 of chapter 3, Uh, Part of that says that uh, God from all eternity did 
by the most wise and holy counsel of his own will, freely and unchangeably ordain whatsoever comes to pass. It's a great description of the decree of God. Now, one thing I want to address up front, uh, and Pink addresses right up front in his chapter, is the difference between decree singular and decrees plural. Uh, so I want to read this from Pink because I think it's, um, it says it well. He says, we have used the singular number as scripture does. He refers to Romans 8.28 and Ephesians 3.11. Because there was only one act of God's infinite mind about future things. But we speak as if there had been many, because our minds are only capable of thinking in successive revolutions, as thoughts and occasions arise, or in reference to the various objects of his decree, which, being many, seem to us to require a distinct purpose for each one. But, and I think this is really important to to grasp, if we can, Pink says, but an infinite understanding, that's God, does not proceed by steps from one stage to another. And he quotes Acts 15, 18 here, which says, Known unto God are all his works from the beginning of the world. So we use, when referring to God and his decrees, his uh, his governing um, purpose and will over all things, we use the word decree singular interchangeably with decrees plural. And again, part of that is, is our creaturely minds. We observe many objects of God's purpose and his will. We observe it playing out over the course of history. And so in that sense, we, we refer to decrees at times as governing many things at many times. But for God, who is infinite and who is eternal, uh, it is one, uh, one act, as, um, as Pink says, uh, a single act. Now, that brings up the question, um, why do we include this as an attribute of God? If it's an act of his mind... Why do we include this? Uh, why would this be included in, a, in Pink's book on the attributes of God? It might seem strange to include the decree in a list of attributes. But I think it's helpful. It's very helpful uh, to think about it in the context of his attributes. Um, Herman, Herman Bovink uh, treats the decree of God uh, in his uh, Reformed Dogmatics He treats it under the category of the works of God. Uh, He describes God's decree as an inward work of God. And as um, as we saw as well from Pink, he describes the decree of God as a single act of God's infinite mind about future things. So in that sense, we can think of God's decree as an inward expression of God's will. And it had to be an inward act because at the time... It occurred, if we can say that it occurred. Uh, It was before God created all things. So there was nothing outside himself upon which to act. There was no object in existence upon which to act. And so it occurred in his own mind. The decree of God is a proclamation of his divine character. It's a declaration of his sovereign will. For his creation, and it's a comprehensive command that governs all future things without exception. It is by his works of providence 
that God governs all things in accordance with His decree in order to bring all things to pass for the praise of the glory of His attributes. I'm paraphrasing there from chapter 5 of the Confession. But we can think of the course of created history as but an outward expression of God's wisdom, His will, His knowledge, and indeed all of His divine attributes together. They are being made plain. They are being proclaimed to us, revealed to us, all of His attributes. And that outward expression has its genesis in the inward and eternal decree of God. So all things exist first in the mind of God, and we call this the decree of God. And this may relate a little bit more later as we talk about the knowledge of God, but I think uh, Glenn, in his um, study on um, God, uh, the mediatorial work of Christ, uh, discussed at one point how, um, and, and correct me, Glenn, if I get this wrong, uh, talked about this idea of things existing first in the mind of God. And, and we can even think of things existing in their most full sense in the mind of God, because only by God can things be fully known. Uh, we as creatures only perceive things in part, in, in shadows, in, uh, in um, kind of a, a fractured perception of what is real, uh, for we are limited and finite. But God understands all things perfectly, because all things come from himself. Uh, so in that way, we can kind of think about uh, things existing first and most in, in its most real way in the mind of God. Difficult, difficult concept, uh, but we're talking about how the decree of God, uh, from the decree of God, all things sprang forth. All things were contained and contemplated in the mind of God in his decree. So, to return to the question of, of God's decree as an act uh, or a work of God versus an attribute we don't want to get too hung up on it. Um, it may be more proper categorically to think of it as an act or a work rather than an attribute because uh, there's a direct relationship it reveals to us between God's mind and his attributes and then his works. We see them play out in his works. We cannot think of God's decree without contemplating his works of creation and providence and we cannot observe his works of providence without learning of his decree. But I do think that it is proper to consider his attributes that are revealed in his decree. And there are many. As God's decree unfolds over the course of his history, <clears throat> excuse me, God is revealing his attributes. So as we move forward later today to study the knowledge of God, and then next week we'll be looking at the foreknowledge of God, we will see that an understanding of God's decree is, is very foundational. It's helpful. Um, what is being revealed to us? God is revealing something of himself in his decree. And indeed, God's decree proclaims himself to us. Now, some uh, descriptions. Uh, Pink gives us some descriptions of God's decree. Uh, taking a lot from various places in scripture. God's decree is described in many ways in Scripture. So this is pink. The Scriptures make mention of the decrees of God in many passages and under a variety of terms. The word decree is found in Psalm 2-7 and other, other places. 
In Ephesians 3.11, we read of his eternal purpose. In Acts 2.23, of his determinate counsel and foreknowledge. In Ephesians 1.9, of the mystery of his will. In Romans 8.29, that he also did predestinate. In Ephesians 1.9, of his good pleasure. And God's decrees are called his counsel to signify that they are consummately wise. They are called God's will to show he was under no control, but acted according to his own pleasure. When a man's will is uh, when a man's will is the rule of his conduct, it is usually capricious and unreasonable. But wisdom is always associated with will in the divine proceedings, and accordingly, God's decrees are said to be the counsel of His own will. Again, bringing in this idea of, of perfect wisdom in all of God's dealings, all of his decrees are perfectly wise. There is no caprice or unreasonableness in him. So I think it's a good kind of coverage of, of the words, many of the words and language that scripture uses to talk about the decree of God. But we also want to highlight and and discuss briefly the comprehensiveness of God's decrees. And here again, I'll I'll read pink. The decrees of God relate to all future things without exception. Whatever is done in time was foreordained before time began. God's purpose was concerned with everything, whether great or small, whether good or evil. Although with reference to the latter, with reference to its contemplation of, uh, of what is evil, we must be careful to state that while God is the orderer and controller of sin, he is not the author of it in the same way that he is the author of good. Sin could not proceed from a holy God by positive or direct creation, but only by a decretive permission and negative action. So this is another one of those things that is very difficult to grasp. When we talk about God's decree encompassing and contemplating all things without exception, we have to wrestle with the fact that that includes things that are evil. Sin exists. And if we say that things only come to existence in accordance with his eternal decree, then it must account for it some way. But from what Pink says, we can see that God's decree encompasses all things Yet we must exclude any thought that God authored sin. It's a difficult idea for our creaturely minds, but it's a point that scripture is abundantly clear about. Uh, We talked about this at some length uh, several months ago when we uh, did a study on God's providence. Um, And so I won't retread all of that ground, uh, but it's one of those things that we have to hold in faith. Scripture says it, and that is our rule of faith and practice. So what Scripture says, we receive in faith. Uh, But I think it's enough to say that God governs all circumstances, and by his decree, he allows for sin that comes from the creature, that comes uh, not from him, uh, but from sinful and rebellious creatures. And yet, he completely controls and sets the channels in which all of those sinful actions are going to play out. Uh, And so nothing is outside of his will. Nothing occurs apart from his decree. 
nothing is is a surprise to God. I think I, we can put it that way, um, maybe most helpfully. Pink also goes on to talk about how, uh, and we've mentioned this already, but we can learn of the scope and the extent, the comprehensiveness of his decree by observing what comes to pass. If we take God at his word in scripture, that nothing comes to pass, that he has not ordained and set forth in his decree, then all we have to do is look at what happens around us to know what is his decree. Again, a small window, a very uh, limited view of God's decree But whatever comes to pass, we know is contemplated by God and his will. It's happening according to his purpose, uh, his determined purpose. Pink says it this way. We may learn what is the extent of the divine decrees from the dispensations of providence in which they are executed. So through all of human history, God is executing his divine decrees. They are coming to pass because he ordained them from before he laid the foundation of the world. And we observe them every day. Now, Pink um, describes what he calls properties of God's decree. What are the things that characterize God's decree? First, he says the decrees of God are eternal. He argues that because God is infinite and unchanging, all his decrees must be eternal as well. Otherwise, if any decree came about in time rather than in eternity with God, then it would imply that God had to in some way update or change his will in order to account for some change or unanticipated circumstance. And we clearly see this idea contradicted in many prophecies in Scripture. This is pink again. God is not ignorant of future events which will be executed by human volitions. He has foretold them in innumerable instances, and prophecy is but the manifestation of his eternal prescience. Scripture affirms that believers were chosen in Christ before the world began. That's Ephesians 1.4. Yea, that grace was given to them then. That's 2 Timothy 1.9. God cannot say these things. God cannot prophesy about future events unless he knows that they will take place. That's that's the definition of prophecy itself. And so, again, these are eternal decrees. And because they are eternal and because they are known to God, he can speak with authority on what will come to pass. And it's for that reason that God's people have always taken his prophecies very seriously. So all that scripture says that will come to pass Uh, we can have confidence that they will. Pink says that um, God's decree is wise. He says, Wisdom is shown in the selection of the best possible ends and of the fittest means of accomplishing them. I think it's a great way to put it. Psalm 104, 24 says, O Lord, how manifold are your works. In wisdom you have made them all. So Pink here encourages us uh, in, uh, in his book, he encourages us to measure the wisdom of God's decrees, not by what we can observe by our own perception, but by what we know of God himself. 
So where it's difficult for us to see the purpose in something, where it's difficult to understand why uh, God is causing some things to play out the way that they are, and I think we can all uh, identify with that problem. Um, we are not infinitely wise. And so if we are measuring what we observe, um, if we are measuring God's decree against our own ability to understand, we will fall short. And so Pink helpfully encourages us to look at the object of our faith, uh, and that is God himself. Uh, what do we know about God? And let's measure what we see and understand uh, in history and in our own lives by that, uh, on that basis. It must be consistent with God's character. He says it this way. This is pink. He who perceives the workings of admirable skill in the parts of a machine, which he has an opportunity to examine, is naturally led to believe that the other parts are equally admirable. In like manner, we should satisfy our minds as to God's works when doubts obtrude themselves upon us and repel any objections that may be suggested by something that we cannot reconcile to our notions of what is good and wise. When we reach the bounds of the finite and gaze toward the mysterious realm of the infinite, let us exclaim, Oh, the depths of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. He's quoting Romans 11.33 there. Pink also talks uh, about how God's decrees are free. That God was influenced by nothing and no one outside himself. It's the decree of, as we talked about last time, the solitary and independent God. And so his decrees are totally free. And by the same token, he talks about God's decrees being absolute and unconditional. He says, the execution of God's decrees is not suspended upon any condition which may or may not be performed. In every instance where God has decreed an end, he has also decreed every means to that end. So again, that gets into the idea of the comprehensiveness of God's decree. All things are contemplated. All things are decreed. So they hang upon no condition, no contingency. Okay, I want to keep moving along here because we're running short of time and I want to get to the knowledge of God. Pink concludes the chapter with a bit of an application about how we as believers should interact with or respond to the decree of God. If we see that it is comprehensive and contemplates all things, that nothing happens that God did not decree, that is not contained in his decree from before he created all things, what can we respond with but a great comfort? We can have a great comfort. We can take comfort in God's decree. He says, Oh, my reader, how thankful should we be that everything is determined by infinite wisdom and goodness. What praise and gratitude are due unto God for his divine decrees. It is because of them that we know that all things work together for good to them that love God, to them that who are to them who are called, excuse me, the called according to his purpose. 
That's Romans 8.28. Well may we exclaim, for of him and through him and to him are all things, to whom be glory forever. Amen. That's Romans 11.36. So that's the decree of God. It is comprehensive. It governs, uh, it uh, contemplates all things. It is absolute, unconditional. From God's decree, we can learn of his attributes, of his eternity, his wisdom. That he is absolute and unconditional. Again, he is displaying his attributes in his decree. Okay, uh, chapter 3. We'll move into that. It is uh, on the knowledge of God. So this is not us knowing God, but it is the knowledge that God has. The, the knowledge of God, uh, speaking for a moment about, uh, again, categories of, of attributes, that different theologians categorize things differently. Uh, the knowledge of God falls within a, a category of God's attributes that some describe as God's intellectual attributes, as distinguished from his moral attributes. So the things that have to do with uh, knowledge, wisdom, uh, God's mind, things like that. As, a, as opposed to moral attributes, love, mercy, justice, things like that that have to do with what we understand to be morality. God's divine intellect is described in various ways in Scripture and by theologians to capture its various relationships to creatures. So as, as Scripture talks about the knowledge of God in different contexts... Uh, as applied to different objects, creatures, uh, or circumstances, it uses different words to highlight uh, things um, for our understanding, our better understanding. Herman Bovink includes among the intellectual attributes God's knowledge, foreknowledge, wisdom, and trustworthiness. Um, and I won't, there's a, a great passage from um, Petrus van Maastricht that goes into this uh, differentiating and making distinctions among different attributes um, included in the divine intellect. But he includes uh, intelligence, knowledge, omniscience, foreknowledge, wisdom, prudence, and he even includes art. He, he describes it as art, uh, referencing the skill with which uh, God uh, applies his knowledge to various things, various objects. So again, even when talking about the knowledge of God at its um, most broad sense, referring to the intellect of God, there are many, many things that can be considered and have been considered volumes that have been written on the knowledge of God. So we'll, we'll jump into Pink here, his description of God's knowledge. Um, and this chapter, and I think this is a bit of a theme in his chapters, it, it's, it's not so much to describe or to define um, for, for purposes of, of discussing. It's not so much to describe and define uh, an attribute of God, but the real, um, the real benefit, I think, comes in application. And in, in what can we learn of this? We cannot fully understand it. We can describe something in, in a few sentences. Um, and so Pink does that here pretty, pretty well, and I don't think we can do much better. And so a lot of this is just, what can we learn from this? What can we take away from this? How can we apply it? So I'll read this, and I think it's a great statement. 
on God's knowledge. God is omniscient. He knows everything. Everything possible, everything actual, all events and all creatures of the past, the present, and the future. He is perfectly acquainted with every detail in the life of every being in heaven, in earth, and in hell. And he quotes Daniel 2.22, He knoweth what is in the darkness. Nothing escapes his notice. Nothing can be hidden from him. Nothing is forgotten by him. Well, may we say with the psalmist, such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high. I cannot attain unto it. That's Psalm 139.6. His knowledge is perfect. He never errs, never changes, never overlooks anything. Neither is there any creature that is not manifest in his sight, but all things are naked and opened under the eyes of him with whom we have to do. And that's Hebrews 4.13. Yes, such is the God with whom we have to do. So God's knowledge can be summed up in a word, omniscience. He knows all things. All things are laid bare before him. Herman Bavink says, God is conscious of and knows all that exists outside his being. Scripture nowhere even hints that anything could be unknown to him. The notion that something should be unknown to him is dismissed as absurd. God's knowledge, both of himself and of the universe, is so decisively and clearly taught in Scripture that it has at all times been recognized within the Christian church. Psalm 94, verses 9 and 10. And I'm quoting this from the KJV because um, I think it does a little bit better than the New King James. He says, uh, Scripture says, He that planteth the ear... Shall he not hear? He that formed the eye, shall he not see? He that chastiseth the heathen, shall he not correct? He that teacheth man knowledge, shall he not know? So putting into perspective um, creatures as compared to the creator, what we know of as knowledge is very imperfect uh, and only comes because of the knowledge of God. And we must remember that it is God who created our minds. God who created and implanted our ability to understand or know anything. So if he did so, can he not much more know all things? I might skip this. No, I won't skip this. Okay. This is Herman Bavink. He says that God knows things, not by observation, but from and of himself. This is why it's so helpful to to start with the decree of God, uh, that these things are contemplated and and, uh, foreordained in God himself. So God knows things from and of himself. Our knowledge is posterior. It presupposes the existence of things and is derived from it, from that existence. Exactly the opposite is true of God's knowledge. He knows everything before it exists. Scripture expresses this very clearly when it states that God knows all that happened before it happens. God is the creator of all things. He thought them before they existed. 
I think that's a great way to say it too, that, that ties together the decrees of God with the knowledge of God. Of course he knows all things. He decreed all things. It's a necessary implication. It necessarily His knowledge necessarily flows out of his decree, which is comprehensive. Now, pink goes to almost a surprising place, but I guess not so surprising uh, when you consider Scripture. But he talks about how the knowledge of God is a solemn truth to sinners. The fact of God's omniscience, that he knows all things, should lead us to worship and adore him because he is infinitely high above us and worthy of adoration. But pink points out that for sinful fallen creatures, the omniscience... Of a holy God is also a terrible thought. He says it this way. How solemn is this fact. Nothing can be concealed from God. For I know the things that come into your mind. Every one of them. That's Ezekiel 11.5. Though he be invisible to us. We are not so to him. Neither the darkness of night. the The closest curtains. Nor the deepest dungeon. Can hide any sinner. From the eyes of omniscience. Those who do not have Christ as Savior and Mediator hide from God. Perhaps more accurately, they attempt to hide from God in their hearts by denying His perfect and intimate knowledge of them. Is it any wonder that they suppress the truth and unrighteousness, as Paul says in Romans 1? For how terrible and frightening. To lowly and sin-filled creatures is the wrath of God that is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. But lest we be moved to pride that we are not as other men, as the Pharisee prayed, let us remember Paul's words to the Corinthians, such were some of you. Indeed, in our sin and unbelief, such were all of us. Hiding from God's all-seeing eye like Adam in the garden or like Jonah on the boat to Tarshish. But without any real hope of success. For all men can, as scripture says in Numbers 32, 23, be sure that your sin will find you out. But in sharp contrast to the sinner who despises and hates God's knowledge, we can see that for a believer, the fact of God's knowledge is a comfort. And here I'll read pink again. But to the believer, the fact of God's omniscience is a truth fraught with much comfort. In times of perplexity, he says with Job, but he knoweth the way that I take. It may be profoundly mysterious to me, quite incomprehensible to my friends, but he knoweth. In times of weariness and weakness, believers assure themselves, he knoweth our frame. He remembereth that we are dust. That's Psalm 103, 14. In times of doubt and suspicion, they appeal to this very attribute, saying, Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. And see if there be any wicked way in me, and lead me in the way everlasting. That's Psalm 139, 23 and 24. In times of sad failure, when our actions have belied our hearts, when our deeds have repudiated our devotion, and the searching question comes to us, Lovest thou me? We say, as Peter did, Lord, thou knowest all things. Thou knowest that I love thee. That's John 21, 17. So what a profound comfort for a Christian. 
to know that God knows all things. Not only did Christ die for us while we were yet sinners, Romans 5.8, knowing with a perfect knowledge the full extent of our wickedness, but now that we have received God's grace and forgiveness, no one, as Paul says, can lay a charge against God's elect. For no one can introduce any new or unknown fact or evidence into God's courtroom that has not already been laid bare before the divine judge who knows all things. And praise God for that. So, how are we to respond to this truth? This omniscience, this perfect and complete knowledge of God. Pink includes a number of of takeaways or applications that we can draw. First, it encourages the believer to prayer. Because God knows the thoughts and intents of the heart, and He knows and hears all things even before you ask it, you can be sure that your every prayer and petition will be heard. Beyond that, you can be sure, as Pink says, that God's infinite mind is as capable of paying the same attention to millions as if only one individual were seeking its attention. Christian, therefore, come boldly unto the throne of grace, as it says in Hebrews, and enter into his gates with thanksgiving and into his courts with praise, as it says in Psalms. So it encourages us to prayer. It also moves us to amazement. God is exalted high above the most learned, the most wise, the most knowledgeable among men. So apply your finite mind, if you can, to comprehend the never-ending abyss of God's infinite mind. When you find that you are unable to do so, be amazed at His glory. Pink also says that knowledge of uh, an understanding of God's knowledge ought to fill us with a holy awe. We ought to be filled with reverent and holy awe because of the power revealed in God's knowledge. It should also move us to restraint. How it should restrain us from sin to know that God sees all things, hears all things, knows all things perfectly, even the hidden things of the heart that no man can observe. If you are an unbeliever, this same God who sees and knows your sin stands ready to forgive and cleanse it by the power of Christ's blood. Turn to Him. But for the believer, the same God who forgave all your sins and justified you in Christ Jesus with knowledge of all your sins stands equipped uh, stands equipped excuse me, I messed up that sentence. He stands ready to equip you by His Spirit to repent and mortify your sin daily. Run to Him. God's knowledge should also move us to adoration. With with full and perfect knowledge of your weakness, your failure, and your sin, this God placed His loving care upon you from before you were born. In response, let us apply our hearts to make Him the object of our greatest affection. Let us adore Him. So that concludes chapter 3 and our lesson for today. Um, Next week, uh, Lord willing, we'll look at chapter 4 on the foreknowledge of God and chapter 15 on the love of God. My reasons for taking things out of order to cover those two attributes together, I'll leave you to discover 
as you read it this week or think about it, uh, and I hope to make it plain next week. Um, on that note, I don't think we have any more copies of uh, the book on hand, but let me know if you don't have one and would like one. Uh, we can arrange and, and uh, track some down. There's also a, a free PDF available online, um, and I meant to email that out this week and, and neglected to do so, so I apologize about that. Um, but I'll try to do that this week so that if it uh, works for you and, and is helpful, um, there's a PDF online. So personally, I like hard copies because I can scribble all over them and use a lot of paper and ink printing out PDFs to do that. So, um, All right, so that's it on the decrees and knowledge of God. Uh, let me pray and then we'll be dismissed to worship. Lord God, our Heavenly Father, you are sovereign and high above us. You are most wise. You are infinite. You have decreed all things from before you laid the foundation of the world. You knew us before we were born. And Lord, even now you know all things. Nothing escapes your eye. Nothing escapes your ear. And we who are held close to your heart bound to Christ your Son, made co-heirs and children by your grace, what comfort we can have in this knowledge. Not that we might boast, for what do we have to boast in, but that we might glory in your mercy, in your love, and in your wisdom, though we perceive it only in part. Lord, our desire is to know it in full. And we look forward to the day when we will be brought into your presence before the very throne in heaven. And we will adore and worship you with all the saints and the angels forever. Lord, what a day that will be when we behold your attributes face to face. Father, even now we get a foretaste of that glory as you invite us to worship with your people in your house as you lay before us your ordinances and your means of grace, the word, sacrament, and prayer that we can enjoy together as your people. Father, minister to our hearts. Pour out your spirit on us, on this place, on these people, your saints at Calvary, OPC. Father, we desire to see you move and work in mighty ways in us and through us. Grow us in a knowledge of you Grow us in your grace and increase our faith. Help us to enter your courts with faith, but also with thanksgiving and with joy together. And all this we pray in Christ's name. Amen.